Georgia's DBHDD reminds people that the Good Samaritan Law can save lives during alcohol and drug overdoses. People are urged to call 911 and stay until help arrives. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the beginning of a brand new week here on Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Another big week in political news uh, nationally, particularly the January 6th committee continues its public hearings uh, in just a little while. Uh, if you're listening live, our 9 o'clock show, they begin at 10 o'clock this morning. Um, they'll have another hearing on Wednesday, so no question there will be a lot of news coming out of that today. Um, they're going to hear from B.J. Peck, the former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Georgia. Um, we expect that he will publicly testify for the first time uh, as to the reasons why he abruptly resigned from his position in the U.S. Attorney's Office um, on January, I think it was the 4th or the, or the 5th um, of January. Uh, and, and we think, we know pretty clearly that he was um, not willing to go along with President Trump, then President Trump's efforts to uh, find ways to overturn the Georgia election. So that will be interesting testimony. There's a lot more happening in the uh, committee. We'll talk about that too. And Fonnie Willis's uh, special grand jury investigating Trump uh, is also going to hear from uh, another uh, Georgian, Cobb County's election chief, who um, they're going to ask her about uh, the recount of some 15,000 absentee votes there and the fact that there seems to have been some White House interference as she tried to do her job. So there's all that and a lot more to talk about. So let's get right to the panel. It's Monday, which means my partner from the AJC is political reporter and columnist. You read the Political Insider column on Wednesdays and Sundays in the newspaper, and Patricia Murphy also oversees the jolt at AJC.com. Hi, Patricia. A big week in politics for all of us. Huge week in politics. It seems like they just keep coming, but this is going to be one of the big ones for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're also joined uh, by Tammy Greer, political science professor at Clark Atlanta University. Um, Tammy, great to have you on the show again today. Thank you, Bill. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And, and Tammy, I think, given that you are far younger than certainly our uh, next panelist, Charles Bullock, and I, uh, you won't mind it if I describe Charles as the absolute dean of political science professors, not just in Georgia, but perhaps in the entire Southeast, if not beyond. Chuck Bullock, you have been teaching political science and writing about political science for half a century. You have had a remarkable career, and you are still at it. And it is always a pleasure and an honor to have you on the show. Welcome, Chuck. Well, thank you. It's always great to be with you and be with the other panel members. I learned a lot being here. Yeah, me me too. All right, Patricia, let's start with the uh, hearing. Uh, And we know they're going to hear from uh, Bill Stepien, who was Trump's final campaign uh, chief. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But why don't we talk about the Georgia angle? uh, And that's B.J. Pack. What are we we pretty sure we know about B.J. Pack and his 
abrupt decision to resign. Well, B.J. Pack was the former U.S. attorney appointed by Donald Trump who resigned very abruptly on uh, January 4th. 2021, in that midst of the entire controversy over the 2020 elections here in Georgia, he was not slated to uh, leave office for another several weeks. So it caught people's attention that he would leave uh, without any obvious explanation for the timing. Mm-hmm. Uh, B.J. Pack has been called to testify by um, other congressional committees, and some of that testimony has been released in the past. And um, what we know and what we're probably likely to hear is about his involvement in Georgia, which was one of a handful of crucial swing states that Donald Trump lost and was in furious, feverish efforts to try to reverse those efforts. B.J. Pack, as um, the highest ranking member of the Justice Department um, in the Atlanta area, Um, in North Georgia um, was a big piece of that effort um, in that the Trump administration, Trump campaign was trying to push BJ PAC to help with these um, efforts to overturn the election. Um, He was resisting that. He uh, has testified that he learned of uh, an effort to have the Justice Department sign on to the attempt to have Georgia Um, call a special section to not certify the election results. And he called that just highly crazy. Um, He was not uh, he was not helpful to the Trump campaign or the Trump administration in those efforts. And so um, he got wind that he was about to be fired and resigned before that happened. But he was a key player on the inside of a lot of these and is, of course, um, willing and has testified about what he saw and when he saw it. Um, Chuck, what we've uh, uh, been told in various reports about B.J. Peck is that um, Trump was uh, angry with him uh, because he refused to uh, have the the, uh, U.S. Attorney's Office here uh, get involved with an effort to, uh, to investigate Fulton County votes, particularly uh, uh, Trump claimed there were fraudulent votes, absentee votes. Pack would not get involved with that. Apparently, the night before he resigned, he got a call from an ally at, at DOJ saying, uh, you need to know Trump's after you. He's going to fire you. And it was at that point that uh, Pack decided uh, he did not want to be fired. He would uh, resign instead. And now he's um, back in private practice. I think he's a king in Balding, as I recall. Well, yeah, and what we see here is that even in the closing days of that Trump administration, people who would not go along with the big lie were being fired right and left. Uh, Jonathan Carl's book, uh, Betrayed, lays this out in some detail. And what's kind of, uh, interesting, curious, is that the person who was doing a lot of the firing was an individual who used to be Trump's body man, who all of a sudden then becomes essentially the head of personnel for the entire United States government, particularly for the Justice Department, a man who has no background whatsoever in, in, the, in the law. So Pac, yeah, was anybody who was standing in the way of, of Trump's big lie uh, was on a very slippery slope and uh, was being, being pushed out. Uh, Tammy, I got it wrong. Uh, he's at Austin Bird, uh, which is another one of the giant, giant law firms uh, here in uh, Georgia, but also has a huge presence in Washington, D.C. So I wanted to correct that right away. Um, so, Tammy, um, we expect that Pack is going to tell us all of this in his first real public testimony. 
on this, but what is the implication? Why does it matter uh, that B.J. Pack reports this story of what happened to him? It appears to me that because um, his resignation was abrupt um, and who who was he before he resigned and um, before there was this a big story about him resigning uh, abruptly um, on um, January 4th. I think that um, him being a- an attorney working in the Department of Justice, where it appeared as though the Department of Justice was not um, at its best uh, during the Trump administration, and uh, for him to, uh, for PAC to resign quietly without much interviewing, much explanation. Um, I think that the the mystery around PAC, his resignation right before uh, January, um, on January 4th, right before all of this uh, took place. Um, And and this is, I think, the first time that the public will hear from him directly. So this quietness for a year and a half um, has really created a suspense for us political heads to really understand what was happening in the background for, you know, this attorney, this former U.S. representative to say, I'm not doing this and then resigning. Yeah. Patricia, I think it's also important to put it in larger context of how the committee is laying out its case against Trump. So while it's called the January 6th committee, and certainly one of the major uh, elements of its investigation is how did that uh, horrendous insurrection unfold on January 6th, what they have made quite clear, and certainly in their first public hearing on last Thursday night, is that they're going to deal with the roots of all this, um, as Liz Cheney described uh, in, in talking uh, in the first hearing. They're going to go back and show how Donald Trump's efforts to cast doubt, more than cast doubt, to claim that the election was fraudulent and that he won, ultimately led um, to the January 6th insurrection. And so B.J. Pack becomes essential in telling part of that story. That's exactly right. B.J. Pack is testifying today on a panel with a, an official from Pennsylvania, which was another state that Donald Trump was trying to deny that he lost and then illegally overturn those election results. And so Liz Cheney on Thursday night laid out what she called a seven-point plan that the Trump campaign was working to methodically go through at multiple different layers of the federal government and the campaign apparatus and state governments to try and pull threads anywhere they could to start to overturn these elections, state elections, one by one. And Georgia was a crucial one. And we know that because Donald Trump, we have the that famous phone call of him with Brad Raffensperger saying, I just need you to find me 11,000 votes. Um, in that same phone call, he is complaining about B.J. Pack, and he calls him that never-Trumper U.S. attorney. And so um, we know that B.J. Pack was central to Donald Trump's um, efforts to try to overturn the Georgia election, but then that is part of a wider tableau, a wider conspiracy, specifically criminal conspiracy, that the committee says that it is painting. And so that's why we're hearing from B.J. Pack today. Right, right. Um, we also know that um, uh, we're going to hear from Raffensperger and probably Gabriel Sterling and maybe others uh, from Georgia. I think in the fifth hearing, they've now uh, made it clear to us. Um, let's expand this a little in terms of today, 
uh, uh, Chuck. And again, we're doing the show live at 9. The hearing starts at 10. So if you're listening at 2, some of this will have already unfolded, not necessarily all of it. Um, Chuck, they're going to hear from a Bill Stepien, who was uh, Trump's final campaign uh, consultant. Uh, uh, and and Stepien's appearing under subpoena. And so he could quite likely be a hostile witness. He's going to be up, we think, first. So it's interesting. The committee's going to hear from him. And then they sort of stacked the hearing after that with people who might be much friendlier to what the committee is trying to establish. Yes? Well, yeah, if Stepien goes along with the Trump line, so there was illegality in Georgia and elsewhere, these questions about the election. So you let him lay that out as a premise. And then you bring in a number of witnesses who can refute that, rebut it with you know, facts, with uh, examples of no, no, whatever Stepien says doesn't apply to, to Georgia. It didn't happen in, in Pennsylvania. So it may be a very effective way of allowing for the story to be told as Trump would tell it, but then go through much like Brad Raffensperger did in that phone call and refute it point by point. And that then helps build a much stronger case for the committee. Um, I would also assume, uh, Chuck, that the committee is going to have a counter narrative. They may have evidence. They may have documents. We've already heard testimony from some Trump insiders who talked about the fact they never believed the big lie themselves. I mean, you know, Bill Barr calling it bull s uh, uh, to Trump himself. So the committee is likely to be able to come back at Stepien with uh, uh, some uh, evidence uh, of th- that if he tries to paint a picture of the big lie having some uh, uh, grounding in reality, they may be able to come back with evidence that it's well, not absolutely. true. Absolutely, yeah, right. And I thought particularly well from the other night. Uh, in essence, what Ivanka Trump says, uh, I believe uh, Bill Barr more than my father, <laughs> which I think is very, very damning for uh, for the favorite daughter, apparently the favorite child yeah. of that family to say, no, I, I can't believe daddy. <laughs> no, uh, he's not as credible <laughs> as, as Bill Barr, who I've met a few times or something like that. Yeah. And Trump has actually already called out his daughter. Uh, Tammy, uh, on, I guess, uh, Truth Social. Uh, I mean, he was, compared to some of the uh, comments he puts up on social media, I guess he uh, treated her with somewhat kid gloves. Nevertheless, he made it clear he was not happy with what she said. Oh, yeah. And to say that she wasn't, she was checked out, um, and she wasn't part of the campaign and some of the decision making. I found that, you know, very interesting um, as a comparison to how um, the prominent role that she took at the beginning of the the administration and what it appeared to be a very prominent role up into the election. So um, the dismissiveness I, I found, you know, utterly shocking, yet on brand with the former president. Um, Patricia, there's another. Yeah, go ahead, Patricia. You just oh, I was just gonna, I was just going to say quickly for Bill Stepien. You know, he is somebody who has come out of the Republican apparatus. He had worked for the Bush Cheney campaign and for the John McCain campaign, so he is seen as a professional 
operative, um, also worked for Chris Christie. So he's not one of the original Trumpers. And when we were seeing all of this um, Stop the Steal campaign, Rudy Giuliani really started to step into that role. The, all of these sort of other oddball associates started to take over mm-hmm. the mechanisms. And so um, uh, we've seen sometimes in D.C. people uh, sort of say, well, I'm going to need a subpoena just to make me feel better about coming in front of the committee. So I don't know that he will be a hostile witness. I think that's but I think he will have a lot to say. And he was at the center of Trump's decision on election night to come out and claim victory, even though he had not been declared the winner. Um, all right. Uh, we're talking in real time at uh, live at 922 this morning, and uh, uh, we have just learned from CNN that Stepien will not testify today. Um, I haven't read the story uh, completely yet, um, but uh, let me see if I can find it very quickly. He is saying that there is a... Today's hearing before the House Select Committee investigating the insurrection will now start 30 to 45 minutes late. Um, And apparently Stepien is saying that he has a family emergency that will prevent him from testifying. Patricia, that's a a really interesting uh, uh, development in this whole story. Very interesting development. It's also incredibly strange for a committee hearing to start late. And so that yeah. gives you the indication they had no idea this was coming. Um, so yeah. they would have yeah. filled that space in um, because it's so well publicized that starting at 10, they would have just moved everybody forward or added somebody good or somebody else, you know. And so that's very, very unusual. They obviously had no idea this was coming. Yeah. Um, Chuck, let's talk about somebody else who is scheduled to testify today and, and talk about what it means to the committee. Um, Chris... Uh, Steyerwalt or Steerwalt. He's the former political editor at Fox News. He was part of the decision desk at Fox, the team that all the uh, news uh, uh, organizations have in which they are able to crunch data and at a certain point declare states for uh, a given candidate. And it was uh, Steerwalt who was credited with calling Arizona for Trump very early, before anybody else did that. Uh, Trump was furious about it, and uh, he was subsequently fired not too many weeks later. It's going to be interesting, Chuck. Is the committee trying to draw Fox News into this as a propaganda wing of the Trump uh, uh, allies, Trump and his allies? It's going to be interesting to see how that testimony will become important to the committee and to all of us. Well, it juxtaposes um, experience here where Stairwalk does what the media networks usually like to try to do, and that is they want to be the first to be able to call a state. So you've got statisticians there, political scientists, people are looking at past voting trends, and apparently Stairwalk's people behind him. I'm assuming he did not necessarily make the call himself, but was told yeah, based on the returns we see that have been counted so far and where they come from, et cetera, et cetera, we're pretty sure Donald Trump is not going to be able to carry Arizona. So usually your your, uh, your boss at the uh, network would give you a good pat on the back if you call it early and you're right, uh, you, you, know, you would get credit for that. But we know where Fox is and particularly where it's uh, 
its star lineup uh, during prime time uh, remains when it comes to issues about Trump and the election. So to have your out front person on that election night make this call, which is very unpopular with the with Trump forces, um, say is not in keeping with what we, we see from the personalities, not necessarily the news people, but the personalities who dominate uh, Fox News. So he was out of step with the personalities. He's out of step with where Fox wants to be in terms of its relationship with Donald Trump, and he pays a price. Patricia? Yeah, so when Chris Starwalt called Arizona, that began the moment when the Trump campaign started really pushing back. And it was the first time they mm-hmm. said, that's not true. That's not true. You need to reverse that. You need to take that back. And so um, they will be able to hear from them what the message was from the Trump campaign and also what the message was inside of Fox News. Um, and I think that uh, Professor Bullock makes such a great point. Um, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, um, all of the primetime big name players who really hold the power at Fox News we're not going to be going down that road to say that this election was lost. Um, they were going to be going the total opposite direction to say, no, this election was stolen. Nobody should say that Joe Biden is the president right now. So um, it, was, it created an immediate problem inside Fox News. But then it was also the first time that the Trump campaign showed what they were about to start doing. And of course, Tammy, all of, we all know well by now that Fox News is the one broadcast news operation or television news operation that is not uh, carrying the hearings live. At least they certainly didn't uh, carry the primetime hearing last uh, Thursday night, which, by the way, had more than 19 million viewers, which is an important element of this for uh, the committee being able to say, yes, people out there want to know what's going on. Well, realistically... Um, Fox would have been in a, a very tough position if they would have aired it live. To hear um, Vice Chair Cheney to talk in great detail and with the visuals of communication of the Fox um, personalities to, 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 um, with full understanding that they understood that, you know, that Trump lost the election, that they were very clear-minded about it, um, the the email exchange between Kaylee uh, McElmeany and um, Sean Hannity, um, all of these other communications that were put on the screen. So for Fox to actually air it would, would put itself in a position to say either we were wrong or we were complicit in it to their, their viewers. And so they couldn't do that. So that rational choice decision, I guess, to, to not air it made sense. At the same time, um, it is creating this, well, I didn't say it kind of thing, um, you know, to its viewers, um, if, it, if their viewers are not going to go back or, you know, flip channels and go to, to another channel that's hosting it live. And it does a disservice, a huge disservice to, um, to the people, uh, not only who watch Fox, but others who are supporters of the former president. All right, let's do this. Uh, let's get our first break of the show out of the way and come back. Let's talk about uh, the Fonnie Willis special grand jury also investigating Trump and uh, what's happening in terms of a witness they've called who is the Cobb County election chief. We'll get to that after these messages. 
Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. The University of Georgia's Charles Bullock, Clark Atlanta University's Tammy Greer, and the AJC's Patricia Murphy here for today's Political Rewind. Um, Patricia, the uh, AJC uh, is reporting, your colleague Tamar Hallerman, who's really been wired into the Fulton County Special Grand Jury and Fawny Willis, uh, reported on sometime on Friday that um, uh, Janine Eveler, I think I'm pronouncing her name correctly, who is the Director of Elections and Registration, has been called to testify in front of the special grand jury uh, that Fonnie Willis has impaneled to investigate Trump's interference with the election here. Um, and she's been called because, I, I think it's, uh, I think I'm saying it correctly, uh, because they did a recount of like about 15,000 ballots in Cobb County. And what made it more interesting than any other kind of recount is the White House Chief of Staff, Mark Meadows, actually came down from Washington, came to the center where they were counting the ballots, and, and apparently, in addition to that, Trump himself had, I think, to my reports, a brief conversation with uh, Eveler uh, it, to talk to her about this recount that was going on. Tell us what you know about this. Yeah, so um, she, of course, is the Cobb election, elections chief. And as one of the many ways the Trump campaign was trying to um, show that uh, this election had been stolen, a group of Republicans, Trump-aligned Republicans, started to call for a signature audit. We need a signature audit in the state of Georgia. This was after a uh, machine recount and a hand recount. They said, well, now we need a signature audit. And so Brad Raffensperger chose Cobb County for a limited signature audit. It was going back and checking the signatures of 15,000 voters against the votes um, that they cast and making sure that the signatures were the people who had um, cast those ballots, absentee ballots, because so much um, uh, suspicion had been uh, created by Donald Trump's campaign about absentee ballots. So um, this happened in the middle of December of uh, 2020. Um, even at the time, the Cobb elections chief said, this is all politically motivated. Raffensperger is getting too much heat from the Trump officials not to do something. And so they've chosen Cobb to do it. So that is where she was coming from as this was starting to get underway. But she said, of course, we'll do it. And the, the election results will be upheld. They certainly were upheld. But as it was happening, these two uh, contacts from uh, Donald Trump calling her and telling her she could be her hero if she found the fraud. And then Mark Meadows just per showing up in person without warning. Um, two actions that you could easily see as an effort to intimidate those Cobb officials and to tell them we are watching you and we are watching the result here. And so that is what she'll be talking about. Um, and this is to the uh, Fulton County Special Grand Jury. You know, uh, Tammy, it, it's astonishing when you watch these parallel uh, undertakings happening the Fulton County Special Grand Jury and the January 6th Committee public hearings, it is astonishing to really uh, 
be able to say, wow, Georgia really is at the center of much of what happened when Donald Trump uh, tried to overturn the results of the presidential election with a particular a particular energy around Georgia. His rage against Georgia, we're going to see it play out throughout both of these proceedings in the days and weeks ahead. Right. So I, I think that it's interesting. Um, number one, I think the surprise around Georgia in the 2020 election was astounding. Um, it, it's also very interesting to me that the fierceness of 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 coming to Georgia, of calling and intimidating individuals um, to to make something true or make something happen that obviously uh, did not exist. And I, I find it, um, again, on brand with the former president and how the former president appears to operate that, you know, no matter what, just like he said to Dr. Oz or, you know, on social media, no matter what, say you won. Even if it's not official yet, even if the results aren't in, say that you won so that it, it is so in the people's minds. And if anyone says the opposite, well, then they're telling you a lie and not me. And that's how it appears to continue with the former president and the pressure um, onto elected officials. And I, I think that we should praise these public officials for doing what is within law what is in their authority, um, and, and having the integrity to stand up against such pressures to do something that is the opposite of what is true. Chuck? Yeah, yeah. The uh, this whole Georgia situation, I think, is interesting. And uh, what I've heard from Republican operatives is that they, being on the ground along the fall of 2020, had this sense that Georgia was slipping away, potentially. And that they were relaying that information to D.C., but that it wasn't getting through to Trump for whatever reason. So Trump goes into the election looking back at his own victory from 2016, where he carried the state by 200,000 votes. And then Brian Kemp wins by 55,000 votes. So then when Georgia is called and he has not won, it really did come as a complete shock to him because it was so alien to the, the world that he thought he under, understood. So then he and his uh, supporters immediately begin to attack. And this audit was carried out there in uh, Cobb County. You know, a prelude to that, and this takes place within a week, maybe 10 days after the election, Lindsey Graham calls up Brad Raffensperger and suggests that, gee, can't you maybe just throw out some of those absentee ballots from those heavily Democratic areas? So that sets the groundwork for then looking at Cobb County. And again, Remember, Cobb County had been solidly Republican up until 2016. And even in that year, uh, Hillary Clinton gets just a plurality. She does not get a majority. So it's uh, a new convert to the, the Democratic column. And so it really made sense to go in there and look at that county and pull the 15,000 ballots and, and do the signature match and find that, yeah, the signatures all matched up. Patricia? I think, I think, you know, the crucial difference right now with this uh, special grand jury in Fulton County is this is about finding a path to criminality. This is um, talking about criminal conspiracy and um, uh, possibly under RICO laws um, and uh, election interference. Um, and so every witness that they bring is not meant to sway public opinion. It's meant to inform this grand jury who is considering criminal charges. Yeah. And so to me, 
um, every witness that shows up in Fulton County is uh, not uh, not for show. It's not to um, broaden people's understanding. It is to lay out a case for uh, criminality. And that's what I find so interesting about uh, the Cobb election official appearing. Yeah. Okay. Thank you for for all uh, for, to to all three of you for really insightful comments about what's happening with the Trump investigations here and in Washington. I want to move on. Uh, we had rallies uh, uh, in uh, various cities in Georgia, including a big rally here in Atlanta, Washington D.C., other cities around the country uh, that were. Uh, 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 inspired by the uh, Parkland students who have gotten deeply involved in looking at gun safety laws and hoping to find that Congress will pass them. Um, and at the same time, Patricia, we now have learned that, <clears throat> excuse me, the 10 senators, a uh, bipartisan group of senators, have come up with language that they believe could lead, and we got to be careful about this, could lead, to uh, actually a bill which might have a chance <laughs> of passing the Senate. And let me just briefly read the way the Washington Post described what they've agreed upon. Among the gun provisions are incentives for states to pass and implement red flag laws to remove firearms from potentially dangerous people, stricter gun background checks for people between the ages of 18 and 21 to include a mandatory search of juvenile justice records and closing what is known as the, quote, boyfriend loophole, unquote, to bar dating partners, not just spouses, from owning guns if they've been convic convicted of domestic violence. They also would have billions of new federal dollars for mental health care and school security programs. Um, and so it's it's a fascinating compromise that's not going to please probably anyone except it is the first time since like around 1994 that there's been any serious bipartisan effort to pass any kind of new gun safety laws. Yes? Yes. And I think that it um, it is important because of the senators who are aligned here, particularly John Cornyn of Texas. Um, and, and Texas, could there be any more pro-Second Amendment state than that? Um, John Cornyn also is hoping to be the next Senate majority leader and looking for that leadership role. Um, and uh, the fact that there are 10 Republican senators on this is something that never happened after Sandy Hook. It never happened after Parkland. And so it is important, and I think it shows movement on this issue. Um, if you look into the details, however, particularly on the red flag law, those are incentives for states. So in a state yes. like Georgia, you'd have to ask yourself, is this General Assembly and this governor ever going to pass a red flag law? Um, that's very hard to believe because they have all raised uh, serious questions about that in the past. So it would end up being a bit of a patchwork. I do think the boyfriend loophole is very, very important um, because there are so many domestic violence incidents that do not involve spouses. Um, so it, individually, a lot of these are very important. The overall effort is very important. Um, but I found uh, Stacey Abrams' reaction to this really telling. Uh, we have in the jolt today that while uh, Raphael Warnock said, you know, this is not everything we want, but it's time to pass it. Uh, Stacey Abrams says this is just not enough in a state like Georgia. And so I think that pretty much captures the Democratic sentiment here. Not enough, but some 
Democrats say it's time to pass it. And will the Republicans go along is the question. Yeah, we're still waiting. You know, Chuck, I want to pick up on what what, uh, Patricia said about the red flag provision in this. It appears if you're going to turn this back over to states, dump it on them, let them be the ones who decide how to deal with this. You're going to have this patchwork of states around the country, should this actually become law, that are going to have various responses. If Georgia was not willing to take up the incentives, the huge financial incentives to pass a Medicaid for all uh, measure in the state, I find it hard to imagine that this General Assembly is about to pass a red flag law despite whatever incentives the eventual bill offers. Well, right. We're seeing federalism, we're potentially seeing federalism in action here, where states do various kinds of things. Um, and and the, the, the juxtaposition between Warnock and Abrams' position on that that you mentioned, I think that's a real risk for the Democratic Party, that they make the good the opposition of the ideal. Uh, there's only so much you're going to be able to get to the Senate. We saw the House pass a bill last, last week, which went much further than this proposal we're hearing talked about from the Senate side. Uh, Democrats in the House, I would, would think, would not dare want to try to sabotage this because it doesn't go as far as they'd like to see it go. Far better to take the half loaf and to rejoice in it and to say, look, you know, for the first time in more than a generation, we're actually doing something and run on that in the fall, as opposed to, you know, the more progressive members criticizing it and adding to this notion that the Biden administration can't get anything done, which is not going to help the Democratic Party at all as it gets towards November. So right now, uh, Tammy, Warnock is the one who's in a position where he would actually cast a vote, assuming this does become a bill. We don't even this is a very general document at this point. There is not a specific bill that is fleshed out what all of the uh, goals that they've established in this bipartisan committee uh, uh, want to accomplish. So we're going to have to wait and see what the actual bill gives us. but Warnock's the guy who's going to have to vote on it. Stacey Abrams is running a political campaign. So you can understand why they have different approaches to this issue right now. But as Chuck points out, it, it probably is going to be an interesting to watch how a Warnock and an Abrams uh, find a way to um, you know, deal with their various position, different positions on this. Absolutely. Um, I I've always found it fascinating that um, the people who are not in office go to one extreme or another um, because the the actual skin in the game to vote on a bill or to get others to vote on a bill, um, you know, they don't have to do that. And I I echo Professor Bullock's remarks because uh, one of the items that I I, I find um, that folks – sometimes really miss in the equation is that if you don't move the needle at, at all, then things won't change. You can't go from zero to a thousand in one fell swoop, right? That number one, understanding that the Senate is split 50-50. It is split 50-50. And because of the rules of the Senate, you need some Republicans to come on board in order for a, a bill to pass in the Senate. It, it must be done. I think that sometimes this saying that this is not enough creates a false sense to the American people about what actually 
the Senate can do what Congress can do. There are rules that are in place and, um, you know, speaking to what is, as we just talked about with the former president, speaking to what is, um, I think is very critical so that people can have faith in what elected officials have the ability to do. Patricia? Yeah, I think there's a temptation in Washington, especially to prevent progress in order to keep your opponents from claiming um, success on a certain issue. And I think the gun issue is the perfect example. And um, I think immigration is another example. Um, mm. But uh, the the effort um, in some cases by Democrats to say Republicans will not come to the table on this issue. And many times Republicans would not come to the table on the issue because it was such a big package. Um, but it's very clear that in this instance, um, Democrats see real progress on the issue as more important than the political ramifications. Yeah. You know, if we got yeah. to November and nothing had happened, they could say, can you believe these monsters won't do anything? But there's such genuine desire to address this crisis in our communities that I think that's why we're seeing this, because it is so profoundly difficult to keep watching this happen over and over again. Um, let me one last note before we have to get to our final break. Actually, two. One, just an observation. Uh, they are not doing, obviously, what President Biden has said really needs to happen, and that's to establish the age 21 for possession of a like an AR-15, a semi-automatic uh, weapon. But I, but I noticed another thing, Patricia. One of the in talking about you know increased funding for school safety measures, I noticed a parallel story in your paper in the AJC this morning about how local schools are trying to address the threat of gun violence. And one of the things I read is in in schools that are going to try to install devices that will detect uh, hidden weapons, hidden guns that are being carried in beyond just the metal detectors, apparently another kind of technology. And what's fascinating to me about that, Patricia, is that at the same time, there's all this talk about uh, school safety and finding, you know, new funding for it. Permitless carry is now the law in the state of Georgia. And I just find those to be interesting uh, parallel uh, ideas. Yeah. And, you know, we have uh, somebody like Andrew Clyde up in Washington and his testimony or in, in his comments um, during um, a hearing on gun safety um, said, you know, the, the biggest threat to a school is a sign that says uh, no gun zone uh, here at the school. You know, there are there are many Republicans who argue that it's, the problem is too few guns in schools, not enough guns in schools. And so you have uh school districts really struggling to just deal with this very real crisis. And a lot of times that it's not necessarily a mass shooter, but it is kids coming in to school with guns in their backpacks. And so um, they have uh, uh, challenges at every level. And I think the more the conversation is politicized, the harder it is for them. Cobb County is testing out a system that they're uh, likely to deploy in August, where a school, where a teacher they all wear badges and they can push a button in case there is a school shooter in their room. I mean, it's just unbelievable that that is the kind of precaution that they're talking about taking. I got to get to a final break. Chase McGee is uh, directing the show today and he said, and I get, get to a break now. So I will do just that. We'll be back with more in a minute.
Uh, Chuck Bullock, it has been fascinating to watch the split among Georgia Republicans between the kind of pro-Trump wing of the party, uh, led by uh, the party chairman, state party chairman David Schaefer, as opposed to Brian Kemp, um, who, of course, uh, has been under attack by Trump ever since he refused to do anything about the results of the election here. And, and they really are eyeing each other uh, kind of suspiciously. They're keeping their distance. Kemp is not having anything to do so far with regular state Republican Party uh, uh, events. And the latest example of that is that on June 29th, the state party in their annual foundation, GOP foundation breakfast, has Marjorie Taylor Greene as their headline uh, speaker. You know Brian Kemp's going to stay away from that event, and I think Herschel Walker's staying away from it as well. I suspect probably most Republicans are running statewide and you're going to try to stay away from this. Uh, yeah, I mean, she is clearly Marjorie Taylor Greene is, represents the 14th district, probably represents it very appropriately. But uh, much of the Republican Party realizes that you know, that's not the way that you kind of reach out and bring in independence, which in this evenly divided state, a Republican needs to do increasingly. We also got the results, of course, from the, the primary a couple of weeks ago, in which we saw that the only individual who had Trump's endorsement where it seemed to make a difference was Burr Jones running for lieutenant governor. But other than that, uh, the Trump ticket fared very poorly. You know, yeah, Marjorie Taylor Greene and Herschel Walker got nominated, but they were getting nominated without Trump's support. And the others on that ticket uh, either went down in flames or two of them finished second and are in runoffs. So, you know, for the for verification of the weakening influence of Donald Trump, not that he certainly doesn't have any, but his declining influence, we have you know, those data to look at. Patricia, it's this... This is not going to hurt, I assume, Brian Trump, Brian Kemp very much, but it is further marginalizing the David Schaefer wing of the party from the power center of the Republican Party here, right? Yeah, and I think it continues to expose that rift between the real power center and what is becoming increasingly a fringe power center. They do have their um, adherence. There are those sort of like far right Republican voters and activists who still think the election was stolen, who still think that Brian Kemp was a rhino, who were very angry at David Perdue, even for conceiving his own election, which he did very, very quickly. Um, so there is still that group. But the fact that David Schaefer is with the marginalized um, activists and not on the side of the governor who holds the real power and the other statewide officials who were elected successfully um, really speaks to David Schaefer's, uh, first of all, his um, his acumen for picking elections properly and for turning elections properly. He picked a number of these statewide candidates who got you know, 25% and 22% in the statewide election in the primary. So I think David Schaefer is the one who comes out looking the very worst, um, second only maybe to Donald Trump. Um, Chase McGee, I'm sorry to do this on the air, but I have to uh, uh, release your talk button. I can't hear the panelists. Thank you. Uh, Tammy, I want you to weigh in on all of this too, please. Well, I, uh, I'm very curious as to what is going to happen um, at the end of the general election. I'm curious as to how Republicans are going to vote 
Um, how long is this split going to last? Is there going to be some reconciliation? Um, because the infighting with the Republicans will make it a challenge for them in the general election if you have uh, both sides of the Republican Party, you know, uh, having this outward argument in, in, in public and creating confusion um, that could open the pathway for, you know, a, a third party candidate if that person doesn't feel comfortable voting for the Democratic candidate. Or it could open the door for um, a larger than um, expected um, or um, uh, a, a, a large um, um um, outcome for the Democratic Party in the fall, but it just depends. Now, one last thing. Uh, we know that the voters who vote in a primary tend to be the more extreme members of a party. So the fact that even among that group, the Trump candidates do not fare well suggests that, you know, if you had a broader representation of the GOP who had showed up in, uh, in, in May, uh, it would have been even worse for the, the Trump team. Yeah, I think that's a really important point uh, that you uh, make, uh, Chuck. Um, and, and in some ways, it strikes me, Patricia, that if, if, if Kemp, particularly Kemp, was able to win those voters, um, it, it's going to bode well for him moving forward because it, 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 the Schaefers of the party, the David Perdue's of the party, we've talked about this on the show before, they took such extreme positions during the primary that they almost make Brian Kemp look like a moderate, which goodness knows he is not. <laughs> Well, and in a really ironic way, it sets them up much better in November to have been um, yeah. maligned and abused by Donald Trump. Um, and uh, what's fascinating is Brian Kemp has also moved to set up his own leadership committee. So he is able to raise money outside of the party structure. So he has really almost gone, gone back to the old um, the old Georgia governor uh, mm immense power model of saying, I'm the governor, I'm in charge, including of, it doesn't have to be the party, but all the, the donors, the voters, they're aligned with Brian Kemp, not the Republican Party right now. Well, yeah, and you said that better than I. I mean, if he can hold on to those, uh, even those, those right-wingers who voted for him in the primary and carry him through the general and also be perceived by those who might be up in the air about where they're going as a moderate candidate, it bodes well, it seems to me, for his chances, Tammy, although goodness knows we have a long way to go between now and November. There are people who think the wind is at Kemp's back right now. In some ways, I suppose it is, given the margin of his victory, but we've all watched enough elections to know you just do not reach any conclusions in June with an election in November. No, and then you can be, you know, he can stand up, as Patricia just said, to say, you know, I'm the strong person here to say I am strong enough to stand up to the former president. I am strong enough to stand up to my own party who is appears to be leaving who we are as moderate Republicans. And, you know, because I was strong enough to do that, I can be strong enough to have a second term. Uh, Tammy Greer, you get the last word on today's show. I'm afraid we're completely out of time, but I really appreciate having you here, uh, Tammy, Chuck Bullock. We always enjoy having you as well, obviously. And Patricia Murphy, thank you for another great Monday on Political Rewind. Everybody, take care. We're back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, please stay safe and healthy. Bye, everybody. <laughs>